We've been studying the book of 2 Timothy because it's a book that deals with perseverance or faithfulness in spite of difficult circumstances. That's the theme of 2 Timothy, and that's certainly applicable to us. Faithfulness, perseverance in difficult circumstances. And this is the last installment that I'm preaching in this series. Uh, We're looking at the last verses of 2 Timothy. And as Pastor Zach mentioned, there's a number of names here. There actually are 17. By the way, I thought he did a good job pronouncing them. Sometimes when it comes to those Greek names or even the Hebrew names, especially in the Old Testament, kind of like getting a toboggan on a hillside of snow, you know, you just get a running start and slide, you know, through them. But I think the pronunciations were excellent. And these were people that Paul loved, and he sent his greetings to them. As most of you know, Paul's final letter, his last letter, and his final pastoral epistle as well. Paul is imprisoned in Rome for the second time. The first time he was under house arrest, there was a guard nearby, and he was able to carry on ministry to a large degree. But he was under house arrest. But now he's gone before the tribunal a second time and he's been found guilty. And it's only a matter of time, guilty in the sense of Rome's view of what he's been doing. It's a second time as a result of Nero's heightened persecution of Christians throughout the empire. And Paul, I think, was probably considered enemy number one, numero uno. Enemy number one in Rome, at least in the religious realm, not because he was a notorious terrorist, but because he was an effective evangelist. In Rome, that wasn't sitting well. And so Paul was now in Rome's crosshairs, we would say. And it was very shortly after this letter that he would be dispatched to glory through a beheading. But it's heartening to see how many persons are named in this closing section of Paul's last letter. The observations have been made that there are over 100 names that are mentioned by Paul in his epistles, as well as those that are found in the book of Acts, as it kind of follows his story. 100 names in his epistles and in the book of Acts. As a part of his circle of friends his fellow laborers, and he acknowledges them as capable as Paul was. And Paul was certainly a brilliant man of bold and sterling character. As as great a man as Paul was, Paul knew he could not do the work of the Lord by himself. And he didn't attempt to. He attempted to enlist people bring them to Christ and enlist them in the work. Great men and women enlist others to get the job done. And then they share in the excitement of the work. That was Paul's mentality. We see it here in the last section from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And by the way, Sometimes we come to a section, it's easy to say, well, there's nothing but a bunch of names here. I'll skip over this and move on to the next book. This section is not incidental, but vital to the Spirit-inspired message. It's not incidental, it is vital to the Spirit-inspired message. The Lord wanted the church, us, 2,000 years later, the Lord wanted the church to know about some of the people in Paul's life and to learn from their faithfulness and their failures as well. And by the way, Scripture is not written in a setting 
that has been homogenized or pasteurized and all the extraneous things are removed. And you'll see that as Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I want you to bring me several things. Bring me John Mark, bring me my cloak, which is the term for a a heavy garment that had a hole in the top, like a poncho. Bring me my cloak, which I left in Troas, and also the books and the parchment. You know, if, if this was being cleaned up and homogenized and set apart by some writer, they would have left that out. But this is a real letter written in the context of Paul's needs. In one phrase, he says, I need my coat. And the other thing, I need the scriptures and the commentaries. Shows you the very real setting of scripture. And we will see that. This is not incidental. This is vital. I have four ideas I want you to notice with me in these verses. Verses 9 through 22. Let's begin reading here. And I'm going to back up and read a couple verses from chapter 1 just to put it in context, the prison he accepted, the prison that Paul accepted. Chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Because to unsaved people, they're saying, you worship a man, a person who claimed to be God, who was crucified and died? And you follow a man who is being chased, often in prison, and run out of town. Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoners, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Look at verse 16, that same chapter. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul is referring maybe to his first imprisonment, maybe to his second. And then verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4, let's reread those. This is earlier section we studied last week, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelism, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Remember the last act that the priest would do upon the sacrifice after he had slit the throat of the animal. It was the final libation. Paul says, that's my life. This is it. I'm coming to the end of the line. I'm like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. The phrase that's describing a soldier when he packed up his belongings and march to his next destination like a ship that hoists its sail and catches the wind and sails out of the harbor. Paul says, that's me. I'm getting ready to sail out of here. My departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. And not to me only, but all who love his appearing. Paul knew he was about to die. But Paul wasn't ashamed of where he was dying. It was in Rome, and it was in a Roman prison. During Paul's first imprisonment, he had his own house. He was able to receive visitors and allowed to teach those that came to him. But now he was in a dark, damp hole in the earth, and his days were numbered. And he knew that. And he appeals to Timothy, his son in the faith. Look at verse 9. In our text today, that's the first verse in our text, he says, he says in verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. 
Now, Paul is saying to him in our vernacular, hurry up and get here. Hurry up and get here, Timothy. I don't have long on this earth. Hurry up and get here. Then he says in verse 21, come before winter. So twice he tells him, hurry up. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Come before winter. Why come before winter? Because and winter comes in that part of the world, they put all the ships in the harbor in that day, and they never sailed out of port because the Mediterranean Sea had too many storms. It was too dangerous. He says, come before winter or you'll never make it, and I won't be here. Hurry up, Timothy. Winter was coming, and he says he needed his cloak, verse 13. By the way, the scholars that I read said that Paul was probably apprehended in Troas. That's why he says, bring John Mark and bring the cloak and the parchments and the books that I left in Troas. They were all left there. Evidently, Paul was quickly arrested, put on a ship, and taken to Rome. And so those things were all left behind. He was probably arrested in Troas and brought before Caesar. And so Timothy needed to come before winter arrived, come before winter. There's an urgency in Paul's appeal. If Timothy didn't make haste, Timothy could miss out on the opportunity to minister to Paul. And if you and I don't see the urgency of doing God's work now, guess what? Guess what? Life doesn't stand still and we'll wake up someday, maybe in eternity or at the end of our life, we'll wake up and we realize we missed our greatest opportunities. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't procrastinate. And he's saying to us, don't procrastinate the work of God. Hurry up, get here, get busy, or you'll miss your opportunity. By the way, there's no bitterness in Paul's words. He's in prison. He's getting ready to die, to be beheaded. But there's no bitterness in his words. He accepted this assignment and the limitations that God had placed upon him. Now, I'm talking to many people today that struggle with the limitations maybe God has placed upon you. God's in charge. God is sovereign. And maybe he's placed some health limitations upon you. Maybe some financial limitations upon you. Don't get bitter over it. If you can improve your circumstances, great. But don't get bitter over the limitations that God has placed in your life. Accept it with grace. Do the work of God to the best of your ability now. That's what exactly Paul did. He accepted his assignment in the limitations placed upon him. He wasn't defeated. You know, you talk to some people, the glass is half empty. They're just defeated in life. Christians don't have to live that way. We should be incorrigibly optimistic. I love being around optimistic people, and so do you. remember hearing the story about one guy who was always encouraged. He was always upbeat. He was always incorrigibly optimistic. Matter of fact, someone shoved him out of the 15-story window of a high building, and at floor 10, somebody heard him say, so far, so good. (laughs) That's an optimist. We, as Christians, we really should be incorrigibly optimistic because eternity is settled. We know we're going to heaven. As bad as it may get here, so what? We're still sealed for eternity. And even here, we know that God is in charge and everything that comes into our life has passed through his hands. 
We should be optimistic and encouraged. And Paul was, in spite of his, his circumstances, no bitterness. He wasn't defeated. He was triumphant in verses 6 through 8. We read that. If Paul hadn't been in prison, stop and think about it from a very practical viewpoint. If Paul hadn't been in prison, we wouldn't have these pastoral epistles which he wrote from prison, which many of us would consider some of the, if we could say it, the best of sacred literature. Some of our favorite texts come out of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. So the prison he accepted, Paul being the man that he was with the grace operating in his life, he accepted his circumstances that came from God and he did the best he could where God had placed him. May his tribe increase. Number two, the parchments he studied. Chapter 4, once more, verses 1 through 5. Back up. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who scratch their ears. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fable. People are going to believe in something. If they don't believe God's truth, they're going to come up with something. You've heard me say, if people don't want to worship God, they will find a golden calf maker. That's just what the Israelites did. It's what Jeroboam did. If they don't want to worship the true God, they will come up with a golden calf fashioner and they'll worship a false God. They're turned aside to fables, he says. The parchments that he studied, that's what he mentions in verse 13. The latter part of verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come and bring the books and especially the parchments, the parchments he studied. Timothy was to stop at Troas on his way to Rome, verse 13, and he was to get Paul's winter coat. He was to pick up John Mark, verse 11, B there. But more importantly, or most importantly, he was to acquire Paul's books and parchments. Now, there's been a lot of books written about what the books and parchments are referring to, and we have a pretty good idea. The parchments, the books, well, generally most scholars refer to them as commentaries that Paul used in his writings and in his studies, possibly Old Testament literature, because they were, we call them books, but they were parchments or they were codices in that day. So they were the Old Testament books or maybe even commentaries that the Jewish writers had written about the Old Testament. The books were probably Old Testament books or commentaries. And the parchment, he says, especially the parchment. Most of you understand what parchment is. Parchment is our vellum sheets that are developed from animal skins. Very thin animal skin that they would write upon. They were more valuable than the paper because they're much more durable. So they were vellum sheets processed from animal hides. And they were so valuable to Paul because they were probably some of Paul's original New Testament letters or copies of them, or very possibly other New Testament writers' letters that he'd acquire. So Paul was basically saying, bring me 
the inspired writings that God breathed upon that I wrote or that maybe Peter or other writers have written. The parchments. Possibly they were blank vellum sheets that he planned on writing more, depending upon how much time he had. Here's the point. They were so valuable to Paul. The point is, Paul is facing death and his days are numbered. He's not counting sheep. He's not doing crossword puzzles. He's not being entertained. What is Paul doing? Paul is still studying, writing, and ministering. Studying, writing, and ministering. As long as we are drawing breath, we should keep learning. We should keep serving. And that's what Paul was intending to do. As long as he was drawing breath, he was going to keep learning. He was going to keep ministering through the letters that he could write. He wanted the Word of God. The Word of God provides us with more than just information or even inspiration. It certainly does both of those, information and inspiration. But it is vital to the process. It is necessary to the process of our transformation. The Word of God gets in us and it changes us. The longer I live the Christian life, the longer I preach the Bible, I believe that. The Word of God transforms us changes us. And Paul is saying, I don't know how long I have. My head's headed towards the chopping block, but I want to keep learning. I want to keep ministering. I want to keep growing. That ought to be our attitude. Here's a man that we consider the greatest saint who ever lived, and he's studying the Word of God to the very end. He didn't think he had arrived spiritually. And guess what? Neither have we. So let me ask you, do you thirst for the Word of God? You get up in the morning, you say, man, I got to get to the Word. I got to feed my soul. I got to quench my thirst for God. That's really what Paul was. And it's certainly one of the reasons God used him so mightily, so greatly. So the parchments... And the parchments he studied. Third, the people he loved. The people he loved. Verses 9 through 16 go through a litany of names. And verses 19 through 22 do as well. The people he loved. There are 17 names mentioned in this chapter as I referenced earlier. Paul worked with and cared for people. Paul worked with people and he cared for people. You've heard me say, I've done many, many funerals in the last 40 years. The funerals that impacted me were those that people showed up at. Because those people, it's not achievements, it's relationships that people love and remember. Not all the achievements that we accomplish, but it's the relationships that we build. And Paul loved people. He built relationships. Some of them broke down. Some of them failed. Some of them forsook Paul. But he loved people. Look at verse 10. He says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And that has been a warning to Christians for 2,000 years, verse 10 has. Demas is A-W-O-L in Rome. 
And the Bible says he's gone back into the world. He's mentioned two times earlier in Paul's epistles as being a servant of Christ and laboring with Paul. But something made him pack his bags and leave Paul at his most needy hour. Demas has forsaken me and gone back into the world. He walked away from his faith, we would say. Another negative that Paul mentions here, and by the way, as I said earlier, I believe that the Bible is telling us. He says, in this case, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, which by the way, don't confuse with Demetrius the silversmith that's mentioned in Acts who lived at Ephesus and started the riot. That's Demetrius the silversmith. This is Alexander the coppersmith. Demetrius was fearful and got the whole union involved of silversmiths that, hey, Paul's preaching another God. He's saying the gods that we make are nothing. Guess what? They were nothing. They were fashioned by men's hands. He's saying that our gods are nothing. The ones that we make are nothing. And our whole livelihood's going to disappear. Maybe that was the case with this man as well, Alexander the coppersmith. Maybe he felt that Paul's preaching the gospel was going to ruin his ministry of making gods? Maybe not. Maybe he was a Jew that opposed Paul. Maybe he was a Roman or a Greek that opposed the idea of there being only one way to heaven. Maybe he was fortified in the pluralistic belief that there are many gods, many ways to go to heaven. So he opposed Paul and persecuted because Paul said he did me great harm. Be on your guard, he says. Maybe he was right there in Rome. Be on your guard against Alexander the coppersmith. He had greatly opposed the work of God. By the way, may I remind you that here is here's probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. And regardless of how godly your life or how noble your goals or how sterling your character is, people will hurt you. And people will align themselves to oppose you in your Christian beliefs. And they will set themselves up to be your enemy because they hate what you're living and proclaiming. Oh, look at some of the more positive ones. John Mark is mentioned in verse 11. You know the story, I think, about John Mark. John Mark had abandoned the apostolic uh, missionary team, which was composed of Paul and Barnabas. And they took John Mark, who was very young. They took John Mark with them on their first missionary journey. And Acts chapter 13, verse 13 said, John Mark left them. He left them. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he saw Paul and Barnabas get beaten. They're opposed so vehemently and being young, intimidating, and he went back home. The Bible tells us he went back home. And that upset Paul. Paul didn't didn't stomach cowards very well. He didn't deal with those very well. So at the next time they came home to their home church, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. He forsook us the last time. He's not going with us. And the Bible says the tension was so great between Paul and Barnabas that Paul took Silas and he went on his second journey and Barnabas took John Mark and he went on a journey, missionary journey. So now years later, what does Paul say? Paul says, bring John Mark with you to Rome because he is profitable to me. You know what that's telling us? 
It's telling us that there's, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall flat on our face. Sometimes we're cowards. Sometimes we don't speak up for Christ. Sometimes we're worried. But there is forgiveness with God. And in this case, there is forgiveness with Paul. John Mark grew up. He not only grew up, he became a great servant of the Lord. And Paul says, bring him to me. He's needed in the ministry here at Rome. Paul had empathy for people, and he forgave their failures, and he moved on with them. You know, sometimes some types of people, you know, somebody offends them, somebody hurts them, and that's it. They're wiped out. They're off the map. They're outside the circle of friendship, and they're never forgiven. They're never entered back in. Even though they're human, they made a mistake, they did something you didn't like, you don't forgive them. That's not the Apostle Paul. That's not the heart of Paul. That's certainly not the heart of Christ. John Mark was forgiven, and Paul says, bring him to me. He's profitable. I need him. He's good for the ministry here. Bring him with you. So Paul had empathy for people, and he forgave them. He moved on. And then Paul also, as I've mentioned earlier, Paul said, Timothy, hurry up and get here. He said, get here before winter and you can't sail here. Hurry up and get here. I think Paul certainly needed his cloak. Certainly he wanted the books and the parchment. He wanted to see Timothy. Timothy was his son, his son in the faith. He wanted to see Timothy one more time, talk to him and hear his voice and give him some parting words and hug him and and tell him to carry on in the ministry. Paul wanted to see Timothy because he loved him He was his son in the faith, and he wanted to express that love to him and charge him in person. And we need to express our love to people. Sometimes we're hesitant to do that. I don't want to get mushy. I don't want to get frothy. That's not my style. We need to tell people we love them. We need to love on them while they're still warm. I have done a lot of funerals in the last 40 years. I've seen people come up to the casket and weep and pull the person up out of the casket and hug them and cry. And I've often thought, I wonder if they ever expressed their love to them while they were still warm. We need to love people while they're still warm. Paul said, Timothy, get here as quick as you can. I just got to see you one more time. I just want to tell you how much I love you. Love them while they're still warm. Fourth and finally, verses 16 through 18, the perseverance he demonstrated. Paul kept going. Paul's courage was not dampened by the weakness of those around him. He says, all forsook me, only Luke is with me. Now, all the people that mentioned, some were sent by Paul. They were charged with Paul. Crescens does this, Tychius does that. He had sent them out, but Paul was all alone other than Luke. And the secret of his strength, his perseverance, his faithfulness, in spite of the circumstances, was his dependence upon the Lord. Paul was a regular human being that God used. He was not Superman, not super saint. He was Paul the Apostle. And he depended upon the Lord. Matter of fact, four times, I found this interesting. I hope that you will as well. Four times the Bible tells us that the Lord came to Paul and strengthened him. Let me give them to you. 
When he was discouraged at Corinth because of the pagan idolatry, it's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 11. He was discouraged and the Lord strengthened him, the Bible says. When he was discouraged at Corinth, second, when he was arrested in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. He was arrested and he he knew this could be the end of his ministry. And the Lord appeared to him and strengthened him when he was arrested in Jerusalem, Acts 23. When he was capsized in the Mediterranean, maybe he thought, this is it. I'm out here in the big body of water and hanging on to a plank. This is it. When he was capsized in the Mediterranean, the Lord came to him, Acts 27, verse 22, and encouraged him. And the last time, 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, when he was incarcerated in Rome. The Lord came to him and encouraged him. Paul's secret to his perseverance was he turned to the Lord. God, I, I lack the strength. I, I need your grace. Lord, help me. That's Paul. It should be us. What is in this phrase, this next phrase? He says, I was delivered from the mouth of the lion. Look at verse 17. What is Paul referring to when he says, I was delivered from the mouth of the lion? Certainly, it was not a literal lion in a Colosseum because Roman citizens, which Paul was, could not be fed to the lions or do battle with the lions. So we know it's not that. It was outlawed for Roman citizens. He was not delivered from Nero, who had Paul in his crosshairs. Or otherwise, Paul would have been set free and he would have lived. So he's not referring to Nero and calling him the lion. I like what I read several people said, that it probably is referring to him cowering before the tribunal and denying Christ. Here is Paul going to be before Nero or at least his representatives in a tribunal. And Paul, like any man, could realize if I just say, okay, I won't preach in the name of Christ or I'll worship some of the other gods and even lie about it. He could have been set free. He could have gone out without the chains and the bonds. Paul was probably fearful that he wouldn't be bold in proclaiming the name of Christ and his allegiance to the Lord and the truth of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was afraid he would cower before the lion because what does a lion do? A lion roars, and you've heard a lion roar. I've, I had the wonderful privilege of visiting our missionaries in Africa, the Conorups, and they took us out to the Maasai Mara for a day, and we heard the lion roar. When the lion roars, it's like all the prey stops. Uh-oh, that's a lion. I could be dead meat. And then they start running. But that lion roars, it, it reverberates within your chest, that lion roar. And Satan is referred to as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul was probably saying, I was fearful I might deny the Lord, or I might not speak up for the Lord, but I was delivered from the mouth of the lion. I, I testified, I was faithful. God delivered me and gave me the grace and the strength. I think that's what he's referring to. Satan being a paralyzing agent. Because Paul was a man. He had fears just like any other man. He could be intimidated just like the rest of us. But the Lord being with Paul made him more than a match for even Nero's threats and cruelty. He stood tall. He stood true. And when our friends forsake us, because that's what he says, the Lord comes in. 
the Lord follows through. The Lord draws near. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. He says, but the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. There were probably many listening at the tribunal. There were many that would carry that message of a dying man boldly proclaiming his faith in Jesus Christ that would be saved and would carry that message that the Gentiles might hear also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Then verse 18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Paul was assured of final delivery and safety. He was going to be delivered from this world safely into the arms of Jesus. Because God is sovereign, the enemy's evil work Because God is in control, the enemy's evil work ultimately turns out for man's good. That's why he says in verse 17 that the Gentiles will hear. Nero thinks he's won a victory. Rome thinks that they've beaten Christianity, but the Gentiles will hear. And then in verse 18, and that's for God's glory. He says, what's happening to me, even through my imprisonment and my death, is going to redound to the gospel being preached, and God will be glorified. What a way to go out. What a way to think of your final act and your dying moments. I am so glad Timothy didn't procrastinate. I'm so glad that Timothy didn't say, well, I got got a lot of things I got to get accomplished right here in Ephesus. And I, and I probably, he'll probably be dead by the time I get there. I'm so glad that Timothy didn't procrastinate. So let me ask you, are there people in your life that you need to express your love to and maybe you need to express the gospel to? Don't procrastinate. How did Paul do so well in spite of such difficult, difficult circumstances? Let me give you three, four ideas here and we're done. He graciously accepted his limitations, number one. He graciously accepted his limitations. He says, God, this is what you have for me. I accept it and I'll use it to the best of my ability. I'll be the best Paul I can be right here, right now. He accepted his limitations. Number two, he diligently studied God's word. He might have been days or weeks away from dying, but he says, My ministry is not done yet, and my growth is not done yet. I'm going to keep studying the Word of God. Is that your attitude? Number three, he lovingly forgave people. He didn't have a grudge list. He lovingly forgave people, people that forsook him, people that had cowered out of the mission trip, people that he could have been irritated with. He lovingly forgave people. Do you? And last, he courageously stood for the truth. He wasn't going to back down, wasn't going to back up. He was just going to stand tall for Jesus Christ and the gospel message. He stood valiantly, courageously for the truth when he faced opposition. That is why Paul was used by God. Let's pray. Father, 
we read the life of a man, and he was a man, just a man, but a man greatly used. And we're encouraged and motivated and blessed by the man that you use. And there have been many men and women and young people that you've used down through the centuries. We want you to use us. So may we learn and keep learning all the way to the end. May we forgive and keep forgiving those that hurt us and maybe those that turn away from the truth. And may we love, love people, express our love, communicate our love. Help us, Lord, to be like Jesus Christ, who Paul sought to imitate. Maybe there's someone here today that says, Pastor, I'm, I'm here today, and you've been ringing my bell. You've been talking to me, and God's been speaking to me about my walk with him. And I'm doing business with God. I want you to know that right here in my seat. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm getting things straightened around. I'm, I'm reprioritizing my priorities. Then do business with God right there in your seat. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. I'm not really sure that Christ is my Savior. I'm just not confident that I've been forgiven, but I want that. Pray for me. Help me to come to Christ and to know him properly and have eternal life. I'll pray for you as we close out our service this morning. If we can help you, you seek me out after the service or Pastor Zach or Pastor Brian. We'll do everything we can to make clear the gospel to you. Father, help us as we grow in our Christian life to learn from the scriptures and to never stop learning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.